For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt's cabinet filed financial disclosures last week as required by state law. The state legislature managed to override a veto by the governor on the legislation to inform the public on any companies or organizations in which the cabinet secretaries had at least a 5% ownership or draw more than $20,000 in income. The 12 appointees reported such financial interests. Ryan, what do you think of this information? Well, first, you know, go back to the governor's veto of this bill. The governor vetoed the bill because he said that legislative appointees should be subject to these financial disclosures too. Totally agree with that. I mean, we should have financial disclosures and these financial disclosures should be robust. Uh, I disagree with the veto because it's like, we'll do that and let's do the others. Uh, and I think that the governor should push the legislature to do that this session to expand these disclosure requirements. Um, but it's it's really important. You know, I think a lot of these things, you know, feel like we're just checking a box of, of transparency, but it's really important to really understand if the policy decisions or recommendations made by these cabinet secretaries that, that wield an enormous political influence in the state of Oklahoma, if there's a conflict of interest. Um, you know, it goes beyond just, you know, knowing that Kim McQueen, the new Secretary of Energy, has the most awesome consulting business name, in, you know, Kinergy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, how else are we going to know that somebody can come up with a really clever uh, business name uh, other than this? But well, there's a lot that we just don't know about from these financial disclosure forms, even though they have to report them. We don't know how much income they're earning from these entities. Uh, we don't know what kind of control and power they exercise at these entities. It's very generic and very general. So, um, you know, I think, you know, Senator Julia Kurt has been a real proponent and champion for increasing the amount of transparency, ethics filings among lawmakers and among appointed uh, officials. You know, I hope that she'll be able to get some bipartisan support this session. I hope the governor comes back and says that legislative appointees need to be subject to these as well, but then also increase what it is that they have to disclose. I mean, it's not difficult for them to do this. You know, if, if you have enormous amounts of, of holdings in these companies, you've got somebody that can put this stuff together for you. It's not like these folks are sitting up till two right. or three in the morning at the kitchen table, like, all right, well, how much do I own of this company? They know. Uh, and so it's an easy thing to put together. Uh, these, they probably, whenever they ask for this from their accountants or whoever it is that they have their attorneys, uh, they probably get it back and they're like, well, I don't have to turn all this stuff in. So they just immediately can redact all of the other information. And we know that somebody has an ownership in one company or another. Neva. Well, really, I mean, first of all, we, we have to remember that this came out of a very contentious last week of the legislative session. I mean, this mm-hmm. was almost collateral damage to, cert, to a certain extent. Uh, the governor in his veto message took this position of trying to say that it wasn't broad enough, that you needed to bring all of these other uh, folks in to the process, or he he would veto it, which he did, and then the legislature came back and, and overrode uh, that veto. I think I think that it's one of those issues when we talk about financial disclosure, it's very confusing sometimes even to office holders, I mean, when they first get in. I mean, if you are elected to, to an office um, that is a considered a statewide office, this includes legislators, it, it includes uh, uh, folks that are on the bench, it includes people um, kind of ac- across the spectrum, they are required within 30 days to file this financial disclosure. It is an online with the Oklahoma Ethics Commission. Uh, as you were describing, uh, Ryan, it, it's very broad. It is it is at this moment designed to really give a snapshot of do you have other entities and uh, where do you get income 
above and beyond what you will be compensated for in the office that you're holding. And then I think it's important to note uh, to our listeners that these these, uh, office holders every year uh, between January 1 and May 15th, their deadline, they have to go online and, again, make a uh, financial disclosure Mm -hmm. with this information. Now, I would agree that there is a larger conversation about should we expand that to uh, two boards and commissions and others. I think that should have been a conversation clearly that took place during the legislative session, not during a fight at the end of the Mm -hmm. session when everyone was mad and and everyone was trying to kind of extract a pound of flesh. So uh, whether this comes back up uh, in some fashion in this upcoming session, I think we'll wait and see. But I think it is important to note that financial disclosure is something that has been here for a number of years. Um, It's certainly something we see at the federal level. I mean, people that run for Congress uh, and are in the uh, Congress, United States Senate, the, at, the, uh, at that level, they also have financial disclosure. And frankly, it's, it's uh, far, uh, far more involved and far more uh, detailed than what we see here at the, uh, at the Oklahoma level. So, um, I, you know, I think this story is somewhat much to do about nothing in terms of it's anticlimactic that these uh, cabinet uh, folks did what they were prescribed to do, and that is file the form and do what uh, uh, do what they were supposed to in terms of uh, uh, disclosing these broad areas where they have interests in companies, business, and other entities. Legislative leaders outlined their priorities for the upcoming session during an on- annual public affairs forum. While not giving too much details, uh, Republicans talked about tax reform and possibly tax cuts, although the issue recently caused tension between the governor, the House, and the Senate. Even the Democrats are calling for an end to sales tax on groceries. Neva, what are your thoughts on these priorities? Well, I think we're right back where we started. I mean, (laughs) these were the very issues we talked about uh, at the beginning of the last legislative session. These are the issues that clearly... Um, the leaders in both the House and the Senate are interested in, um, and the uh, the minority party, I mean, is interested in, in terms of what niche they want to uh, talk about, go after. I think in terms of tax cuts, we've seen the House and Speaker McCall be very uh, forceful and energetic about wanting to have um, uh, have have tax cuts, uh, be very proactive from the business side of things. And then we've seen the, the Senate uh, be much more cautious, not really willing to kind of engage in that conversation as much. Uh, uh, the Appropriations Chair, Roger Thompson, been pretty strong in, in his statements about that he doesn't favor a lot of this. Uh, and yet I think uh, um, the the grocery tax question, I think, will be back on the table. I've, clearly, Democrats have been, you know, always kind of at the forefront advocating that. But there was a lot of support among Republicans last session. It mm-hmm, just didn't. Mm-hmm. It just got stalled on the s- Senate side, and and they couldn't move the football. So, um, I think these are issues people care about. These are what voters understand. They know their pocketbook issues that affect them directly. A lot of other issues obviously come along behind that, but uh, I think these will be certainly ones that will be at the forefront. And it will be interesting to see in the governor's state of the state, in the governor's uh, inaugural message, I mean, 
where he sees um, uh, the next four years in terms of what he crafts as his message of what he wants to do and what his agenda is going to be. And I don't think we've had a very good uh, snapshot of what that's going to look like yet. Ryan. Well, you know, the governor and the legislature, as we, we mentioned earlier in the program, you know, they ended last legislative session in a, in a, a bitter fight with one another. And that kind of carried over to the election cycle. We, di- we didn't see a lot of lawmakers out on the trail supporting Governor Stitt really enthusiastically that like you might think a party's uh, elected legislators would do uh, with a gubernatorial candidate that's running for re-election. Um, but now he's, he's been re-elected. He was re-elected by a wide margin. Does he come into the state of the state of the duress with greater political capital this legislative session, or is it you know kind of a stalemate again? And you know, I don't think that a lot of lawmakers see their political destinies aligned with the governor's. Uh, you know, this isn't like Congress people and uh, and Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump you know may not have that much influence anymore. But you know, there was this time whenever you know if you were a Republican and you didn't support Trump, then you lost. You know, that's not the same thing with Republicans in Oklahoma not supporting Stitt. I mean, they can win without Stitt, and Stitt can win without them. So I do think that we'll kind of see this political continuation of the last legislative session. Uh, when you talk to people out in communities, there there is kind of this frustration and bewilderment at why uh, lawmakers and the governor couldn't pass a grocery uh, sales tax relief bill. Um, there seems to be wide support among that, among you know across party lines, as it passed out of the House. And you don't pass anything out of the House without strong Republican support and leadership support. But it seems kind of DOA over in the Senate right now, both with you know, uh, Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat, who uh, said that there's going to be some tax reform measures coming out of the Senate, but he's real cagey as to what that's going to look like. There's a working group being led by Senator Dave Rader out of Tulsa, uh, and we don't know what that's going to recommend. Um, and and you have Senator Roger Thompson, Chairman of Appropriations, saying, "Yeah, I don't like the idea of a grocery sales tax." Um, so I, there there is an opportunity though to to trade, right? There are things that the Senate wants that the House wants. Uh, the House might not want, and that's. You know, school voucher reform, uh, you know, that's going to be front and center with a new secretary of education and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kevin Stitt getting reelected and the pro temp uh, Greg Treat still wanting this. Um, I, I think that there may be some horse trading back and forth on those two things. But it is it is interesting to see, you know, the, the Democrats have said time and again uh, that grocery sales tax relief is the sales tax relief is the tax relief that will help most Oklahomans. If we if we lower the income tax rate. We know who that helps. You know that helps Oklahomans that frankly don't need any help right now. Uh, for the most part, we're we're talking about if we're looking at the real pocketbooks in Oklahoma, grocery sales tax relief is where you help help those Oklahomans out. Well, I think I would say this: it does help Oklahomans when you have tax relief and tax cuts. They are largely the small business owners, the people that employ the the uh, small number of folks uh, in their in their business or entity. I mean, these are the drivers of the economy, and so I think uh, I think it's easy to kind of take a swipe at that and suggest that it doesn't have the impact. But when you really look at the the numbers, and when you really look at the overall forecasting the economic uh, outlook for the state, it has significant uh, implications. And when you take Colorado and Texas and places that we're competing against where we are not competitive on the tax rate structure um, on personal income tax. That is a major factor in in terms of attracting industry, business, uh, growing the economy at every level. So I think the other thing uh, to point out now that the dust has settled and we're now talking legislative session again after the election is the fact that Republicans have super majorities once again, 81 uh, Republicans in the House, 20 Democrats, and on the Senate side, 
40 Republicans and eight Democrats. So it will be leadership and it will be um, getting the large consensus out of those supermajorities that will ultimately drive the agenda in the upcoming session. And we'll see what that looks like as we see all of these folks kind of roll out their priorities uh, in advance of the upcoming session. And if Democrats want to have a role in influencing either, either legislation in the House or the Senate, they kind of need that divide, that divide within the majority because then their votes might matter. An Oklahoma lawmaker files a bill to lower the age to own a gun from 21 to 18. Roland Republican Jim Olson filed the measure as the first bill in the House, HB 1001, for the upcoming legislative session. He says that 18 Oklahomans are able to join the military and carry guns. Neva, how much traction will the legislation get next year? Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any way to tell yet. I think uh, if, if we remember, there are always literally um, a number of gun bills that mm. are, are introduced during the, the opening part of the session. Uh, I mean, the governor, the very first bill he signed uh, in his first term was a gun bill. So mm -hmm. we are going to see those as part of the conversation in the legislature. That's nothing new. Uh, and I think that uh, clearly there will be all um, all types of conversation on this. I mean, we've already seen uh, the uh, um, minority leader, uh, uh, Cindy Munson makes statements in terms of where she believes her caucus is in this conversation and other Democrats. But, you know, this is an issue that, again, Oklahomans care about. And it will be, I think, what will what will ultimately be the decider is what folks here at home, when they go back into their districts, about how people feel about an issue like this. And that, perhaps more than anything else, I think will dominate the process and ultimately dictate the decision. Ryan, you know, I'm, I'm a gun owner and, uh, you know, I, I but I, I think that, you know, the, the well-regulated part of the Second Amendment is the part that a lot of people don't talk about. Uh, you know, this, it, we do have the ability as a state to regulate firearm ownership, uh, possession, use, and, and we do that in many instances. And I think when we when we think about policies that would loosen gun restrictions in the state of Oklahoma, we really just have to look at the data. And, and the data shows us that there's an enormous correlation between age and mass shootings. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to say that you know, everybody under 18 that, or everybody that's under 21, 18 to 21 that gets a gun you know, has this uh, you know, increased propensity to go uh, 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 you know, participate in a mass shooting or cause a mass shooting um, in, in the state of Oklahoma. But you know, two-thirds from 1999 to present, two-thirds of the mass shootings at uh, secondary and elementary at, uh, schools around the, uh, the United States have been committed by people that are uh, between 21 and 18 years old, that's, you know, a pretty startling statistic. And so if lawmakers really want to lower that age from 21 to 18, uh, they should also look at some training requirements, you know, maybe some increased mental health require mental health checks there. Um, yes, maybe some red flag warnings there that would allow parents uh, or community members to uh, oversee the, the way that 18 year olds uh, possess those guns. Um, you know, that's, I think that we can't just have a blanket. Well, if you're 18 and up, you get to do this. We already allow that. If you're 18, of course you can join the military, but if you join the military in Oklahoma, you already get to carry a gun at 18. Uh, so this is, this is different. You know, if lawmakers really want to help gun owners out, and this is, uh, you know, where gun owners are really punished in the state of Oklahoma is in the criminal law. Uh, we have so many laws on the books that if you have a gun in your possession while you commit another crime, even if the gun didn't have anything to do with the crime, that it increases the penalty that you serve. And so we have this de facto assumption that if you've got a gun uh, and you're accused of another crime, that you're somehow worse. Mm. Uh, and we see people that 
take plea agreements from, or plea offers from prosecutors that are much more than just the underlying offense simply because they had a gun with them at the time and that has no relevance or bearing on the crime whatsoever. That's an area where lawmakers could really go in and, and deal with something that uh, really affects gun owners in the state of Oklahoma. You know, it's interesting, though. I think uh, a lot of people have to remember that currently 18-year-olds in Oklahoma, they can uh, purchase a long shotgun or a rifle. It's only that they cannot purchase a handgun. Mm-hmm. So, um, and when you talk about uh, carrying a, a loaded firearm, um, anyone under 21 can't do that, even if they're, you know, even if they're uh, doing anything other than military service or hunting. So there, there is a, a, a more complicated, I think, conversation about this when we start talking about the 18 versus 21. Uh, but I think you're going to find, by and large, Oklahomans uh, believe that, uh, uh, that we demonstrate in the broad picture, in the numbers of folks uh, across the state that own firearms, uh, just like you've said and I've uh, said, in terms of uh, personal firearms, that there have not been the issues. I mean, and, you know, this is a hunting state. I mean, we, we don't hear issues uh, uh, across the board. So I think that when you when you see these groups like the NRA, OK2A, and these other groups that are very forceful advocates, uh, strong lobbying efforts uh, uh, in these uh, respective state capitals, this is a conversation that I think folks key in on because it is about Second Amendment rights and it is about something that they care about. And they will have to be well persuaded uh, to uh, hear an argument, I think, that uh, shows something that is about uh, uh, taking away versus expanding. And the long rifle exception in Oklahoma, that would allow them to buy an AR-15. I mean, and that's that's the that's gun. That's exactly right. That's the gun that we hear. I mean, they can go buy it. They can carry it, but they can't carry it loaded. You know, the idea that, and, and I'm not saying you said this, Neva, but, you know, I think the lawmakers may say that, oh, well, you know, we've got to go hunting uh, between 18. Nobody's taken their 9mm out to go hunt. Uh, I mean, and if, they, if a 19-year-old uh, is taking a 9mm out to go hunt, somebody needs to pull that 19-year-old aside and say, this, this is not the way that but, you take that deer. But if an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old is someone who can um, fire a shotgun, knows how to take care of a weapon, knows and is properly trained and knows the kind of the... Uh, the, the rules that one would one would prescribe to in terms of, of being responsible with a firearm, that would be no different for a long gun than it would be for a pistol or a handgun. And so I think that's going to be one of the uh, uh, one of the arguments that we hear, one that I've heard already from folks out there that are starting to pay attention to not only Representative Olson's bill, but other bills that will come along in the face of much of this national discussion where it's still an attitude of ban, 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 and uh, banning firearms or uh, reducing the access to firearms is something that I think is going to uh, have a a, a pretty uh, harsh reaction to among most Oklahomans. Opponents of the 15-year, $5 billion access Oklahoma Turnpike project were handed a big win. The Oklahoma Turnpike Authority lost the first of several impending court decisions regarding the access program. The ruling found that the OTA willfully violated the state's Open Meetings Act by using vague language in its agenda. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this case? First, uh, yeah, big shout out to my friend, uh, Judge Timothy Olson out of Seminole County, who came in and, and tried this case in, uh, in Cleveland County. He was the judge that oversaw these arguments for summary judgment motion because all the Cleveland County judges, I think, you know, properly uh, recused themselves. And so Judge Olson from Seminole County comes up 
And I think he delivers an enormous win for transparency in the state of Oklahoma by by finding that the Open Meetings Act was willfully violated by the Turnpike Authority. What what was at issue is, you know, did their agenda, you know, fully inform the public of what they were going to be discussing at that February meeting? And plainly, it did not. Um, and they they and I think that there's some sense that they. Uh, there was an allegation that they'd done so intentionally and willfully. You had board members testifying that they didn't even know what they were going to be voting on that day. Um, and then if you look at the things that the Turnpike Authority has done uh, in advance of this to uh, you know, politically head off opposition, which no state agency should be doing. I mean, their job isn't to try to win a political fight here. Their job is to administer uh, the, the law as is given to them by the lawmakers. And if there's a political issue, let, leave that to the political officials. Uh, but they didn't do that. They went and they were, they were buying domain names to try to prevent the opposition from being able to put up counter arguments and communicate effectively with the public. That's unheard of uh, for a state agency to do that. And I mean, frankly, it's reprehensible and they shouldn't be doing it. They tried to substitute a, basically a press conference or media availability back in December. Uh, and they said, well, we had this media availability and reporters were able to look at our plan and have this public conversation. But that's no uh, substitute for the Open Meetings Act. The The conversation needs to happen in public uh, and it needs to be hap- happen at these hearings. Citizens need to be able to show up and know that this is an opportunity for them to be heard and how to, how to couch their arguments uh, either for or against. And that just wasn't the case here. And so I, I think, you know, the Turnpike Authority has said that they're looking at this. I don't know if they've said whether or not they're going to appeal. I think that an appeal would just uh, be worthless on their part. I think that they just need to start over. Uh, and that's, that's if they don't appeal, that's where it's going to be. And that's where it should be. And, uh, you know, we can have these public hearings and do this the right way. And if they end up doing the exact same thing, then fine. But if they don't, then, you know, that will be the result of public input through the Open Meetings Act. Neva. Well, I think the fact that this week they did halt all work on the $5 billion access uh, toll road expansion, they, all of it, uh, was clearly in, in, in a direct response to the court ruling. And I think even in their own words, uh, uh, the deputy director at the Turnpike Authority basically said uh, that nobody anticipated last, last, last week's ruling. I mean, I think they were stunned that they were caught dead in their tracks and that the judge ruled the way he did very forcefully. You had the Supreme Court uh, ruling uh, on another one of the Turnpike Authority requests where uh, they wanted not only the judge taken off the case, but they wanted to consolidate, uh, you know, the uh, uh, all of the uh, efforts and uh, get the Supreme Court basically to validate their mm-hmm. their program. That that fell by the wayside. So, um, you know, as one of the attorneys for the um, uh, the group uh, that had kind of brought this brought this to the forefront and had really are the architects of stopping this expansion, which was a David and Goliath mission. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of folks have watched this for months as it began to unfold, believing that they would fight a good fight, but could they ultimately prevail? And now you see uh, basically a citizens group of folks who were adamant in their belief that this was not being done right. And they hired attorneys and went through the legal process uh, to ultimately uh, prevail where they are today. And I think uh, it will be interesting. I mean, you've got vendors now who have uh, who have been notified that basically, as of I think uh, Tuesday of this week, that uh, everything uh, everything basically comes to a screeching halt. And there's a lot of money that's already been spent in terms of engineering, architectural fees, and other things in terms of the work that was proceeding on, as mm-hmm. if it was ultimately 
going to prevail, I think uh, 13, 14, 15 million, whatever it was, there's some question, will that be, uh, will they be able to, um, uh, how will they uh, remedy that or can they remedy that? Um, And so I think this is a big, uh, this is a big stop and a big turn in, in Oklahoma with respect to how the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority and these folks are going to operate going forward because we're talking about billions of dollars uh, being uh, injected into the turnpike system, the highway systems, the upkeep, the um, uh, many of the things that go along with that. And so I think you're right, uh, Ryan, in terms of the whole conversation, we throw the word transparency out so freely in the conversation about uh, good governance and, yeah, and trying to have uh, um, uh, trying to have the information out there for the public to really uh, have available and be able to determine on their own what they think about it. This is going to bring the level of scrutiny up uh, at an unprecedented level. And I think the legislators, it will be interesting to see in the conversation with them as appropriators, as folks that uh, are deeply involved in legislation that affects agencies such as this large agency, what they will react to and what they will want to see in terms of putting their kind of uh, putting their fingerprints on it to try to correct some of the things that have gone on and move forward. Stan Ward, the attorney for the, and these folks that were opposing this, this is their homes. This is their lives. I mean, this was a huge deal. So, you know, I, again, like you said, you know, we throw the word transparency out a lot, but whenever it comes down to your home and where you've lived for your entire life, where you've raised your kids, where your grandkids come for Christmas and you might lose that, uh, that's important. And you need to have your voice heard for the government. Stan Ward, the attorney for those homeowners and, and the opponents of the Turnpike expansion, one of the things that he's, I think that he's insinuating is that the Cleveland County District Attorney needs to look at criminal charges uh, because there are criminal penalties for violation for willful violations of the Open Meetings Act. And he's saying, you know, it's not enough that we have a ruling in our favor here. There need to be consequences. And he said, you know, there seem to be the application of criminal law uh, against you know, certain people is different than against other people. And we'll, we'll see how this plays out with the Cleveland County District Attorney's Office, even if they, you know, I'm not saying that people need to go to prison. Uh, and I don't think Stan is either. But you know, there could be you know, fines levied and, and real accountability here on the criminal side. The leader of the Oklahoma County Jail has left his job. Greg Williams resigned his post as CEO after three years on the job. The Oklahoma County Jail Trust hired Williams to make improvements to the condition and culture at the troubled facility. Ryan, how did he do? Um, I think that uh, it's, you can say that his, his, he walked into an impossible situation and the situation was made even more difficult by COVID. But I, you can't, there have been a lot of situations like that in the last few years. And we can say, oh man, this leader really walked into this and they walked into an impossible time and they did remarkable work anyways. Uh, I don't think that we can look at the Oklahoma County Jail and say that anything is remarkable there uh, in, a, in a positive way. I think we can look at how it's remarkable in a, in a negative way. I and mean, the, the, the number of deaths that have happened in the jail, the number of instances where uh, you've had staff at the jail uh, committing acts of violence against the detainees there, uh, instances where staff have been assaulted and killed by detainees. Uh, I mean, this, this thing is a, uh, you know, when we have a, a Department of Justice investigation now, uh, you can't say anything about the county jail uh, negative that probably isn't true. Um, and one of the things that uh, Williams said whenever he came into this position was that he wanted to change the culture there. Um, there's only so much you can do with that structure. Uh, and, you know, the voters of Oklahoma County said that we're going to create a new structure. Uh, we're going to build a new jail. But you can build a, a great new jail. But if you don't change that culture um, of the people that work there, 
then you're going to have a lot of the same problems. You might not have the, you know, the, 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 the sewage and the, uh, the mold and the bacteria and, and all of that, but you're going to have a lot of the cultural issues. Um, and frankly, you know, where's, where's the, the leadership, um, you know, saying if we want to recruit and retain the best people in these, these jails as detention officers, we got, we got to pay them. Uh, we got to pay them well. I mean, these are difficult and sometimes dangerous jobs. And if we want people that can walk into these jobs as professionals day in and day out and stay in those jobs, uh, we got to pay them. Uh, I don't know exactly off the top of my head what a, uh, a deputy or, or a detain or a detention officer at the Oklahoma County jail makes, but I'm sure that it's not commensurate with the amount of work that they're supposed to be doing there. Um, so I, I think that this, this resignation, uh, is long overdue. I hope that it means that the jail trust can turn a corner, bring somebody in that can begin to work on that culture. Cause again, there's only so much you can do with the structure itself, but they need to have that. They begin to have that culture of, uh, a professionalism conversation now before they ultimately move into a new facility in the next several years. Neva. Well, I think, uh, whoever takes over, uh, is going to have, uh, the same daunting uh, mm-hmm. task and challenge that, uh, uh, that Greg Williams did. I mean, I think that you have a situation where um, he had eight months when he was hired back in 2019 before the actual handoff. And through this entire process, I mean, you're right, Ryan, you've got a 13-story uh, dilapidated aging facility that they still have to deal with every day. Uh, you're housing somewhere around 1,600 inmates uh, every day. Uh, and, and a year uh, a year ago, that number was about the same. So we're still keeping the numbers where where they've been. The numbers are not going up or down. But you have all of these uh, issues that are not only in the Oklahoma County Jail, they're in every jail across America. I mean, it is a systemic problem. It is a problem not not just of money. I mean, there there was an infusion of a significant amount of money in the last uh, three years during his tenure in terms of not only CARES money, but also ARPA money and other funds that came in. So um, money doesn't fix the problem. Changing the culture is a is a big task, and how do you go about doing that? I think you're right. These are folks that typically in these particular uh, jobs are, um, you know, they're not the highest paying jobs by any stretch. And so there's going to have to be a, a serious look. And I think let's also remember that the way the, um, the exit structure was set with uh, Mr. Williams, uh, he will continue to consult. Um, he will continue during the transition as they look for a new administrator, and he will continue to consult for some time beyond that uh, as a paid consultant to the new administrator. So, I mean, he does have, as a result of 36 months, you know, on the job there, he does have a lot of uh, institutional knowledge that is going to be very important for uh, whoever his successor is to be able to grasp onto, to know that information quickly as that person decides how they want to move it forward. And I think you've got a jail trust. I mean, uh, I think he made the point uh, that needed, uh, in his mind, clearly needed, he wanted, needed and wanted to make, and that is that it was just the right time. I mean, the idea that you had a, uh, at, at a recent uh, trust meeting, you had a motion made, no second, to fire him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he made the point that, you know, he's been under fire from day one. This, yep. is, this is nothing new. He's had detractors. He's had folks that, uh, um, you know, were never going to give him a kudo for anything and, and certainly always were just going to continue to magnify the negative, which there's plenty of, as we all know. 
Uh, so I think it is a critical point. I think the DOJ investigations and now the feds coming in, uh, it is, it's absolutely imperative that uh, these, all of these folks come to the table and in earnest start to, to come up with a game plan that is achievable in short incremental fashion that they can see some real results and point to demonstrating that they are trying to fix problems, uh, not just talk about them. And uh, I think I think there's a will to do that. We'll just have to watch with interest and see how the dynamics of all the personalities uh, come into play and whether or not they can really sit at, sit at the table and get that done. Biggest thing we can do to uh, improve the conditions at that jail right now is to reduce the number of people that are there. And we have a new district attorney in Oklahoma County, Vicki Bahanna, who will you know, take office in January. She's already at the, uh, the, the office working right now to begin that transition. Um, you know, that bail amount that prosecutors set uh, or request and is often granted that puts people in jail while they're awaiting trial, while they're still presumed innocent, and many of them ought not be there. You know, they don't need to be there un- under bail. Uh, and so if, if we can begin to see a change in that from the, from the prosecutor's office in, in Oklahoma County and we reduce the number of people that are in that jail, I think we'll see improvements even before we move over to a new facility. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.